you are listening to the Sermon Audio Podcast from Heights Baptist Church in Alvin, Texas. For more information about our church, you can find us at heightschurch.org. I don't know if you ever have, but some of you probably have asked yourself the question, does God love me? You know, d- does God really love me in my life? Um, maybe you have struggled over time and said, well, well, does God only love me when I'm good? What Does God love me when I'm good or does God love me if I'm bad? What if I make a mistake? What if I do something wrong? Does God still love me then? You know, if you've ever asked those questions, if you've ever struggled with that, I want you to know this morning you're, you're not alone. Because the majority of us in here in this room would probably have said, yeah, at some point in my life, in my walk with the Lord, uh, I've asked that question, does God really love me? Because sometimes that's an answer we can give in our head really quickly, but in our hearts, do we really believe it? You know, we could say, oh, yeah, yeah, God loves me, but do we really believe it? Do we really know it? And so over the next two weeks, what we're going to do is move through this uh, incredible chapter of Scripture. It's one of my favorite chapters in Luke 15. And we're going to ask that question, does God love me? Does God really love you? And what we want to do is just to take a look at the love of God to help us to understand who God is, who we are, and how God loves us. Now, when you come to Luke chapter 15, let's kind of put the setting to this chapter in place so we can understand it a little better. When you pick up in verses 1 and 2, Jesus is doing something that of no surprise the Pharisees are mad at. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Christ to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, there's two groups of people that Jesus is allowing to come to him, that he is seeking out, that he's drawing in, that he's eating with, that he's fellowshipping with. There's a group, tax collectors. Tax collectors of the day are Jews who are collecting taxes from other Jews, and then they're turning it into the Romans who are in control of the government at the time. Okay, Jews despised other Jews who were tax collectors. They looked down on them. They didn't want anything to do with them. How many of you have a best friend who is an IRS agent? Okay, there we go. We got it. All right, so common context. We're like, IRS agent, right? You usually don't invite those guys and ladies over to your Christmas parties, you know? And so there's one group. They didn't like them. There's another group, the sinners, Now, the sinners in that are really, the religious people would look at them as the low of the low. These are the really bad people, and we are over here, and we're the really good people. But that's those people over there that are the sinners. We're not them, so we're over here. It's also going to include, in Luke 14 and verse 21, people that have physical disabilities. This would be the lame, the blind, the cripple that often the religious people of the day would push out of their fellowships, would say, no, you are obviously disabled because you've done something wrong in your life. You're over there. We're over here. But we see Jesus through the Gospels are constantly coming to people with disabilities, and Jesus is drawing them into community. So church, let's always be a church that draws people in that have special needs because we still live in a world where they are pushed out. And so when you see the context of Luke 15, 
you see that the Pharisees are mad because they're going to say, wait a minute, hang on. You claim to be God. And how in the world is it that God is associating and drawing into fellowship and eating with and hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? So then Jesus tells a story. And now probably you can read the text in Luke 15, or if you've heard sermons, you see these where pastors will break these up into three stories. I take Luke 15 as all one story that has three parts. They're not separate stories. It all has the same theme throughout the chapter, just broken up into three parts. For instance, the first part of the story Jesus is going to tell is there is a shepherd that has a hundred sheep. One of the sheep goes missing. The shepherd leaves the 99, does whatever he can do to find the sheep, finds the sheep, there's much rejoicing. Then there's a lady who has 10 coins. She loses one of the coins. She does everything she possibly can do to find the one coin. She finds the one coin, and guess what? There is much rejoicing. Then he tells the story of the part in this uh, that we're going to focus over in the next two weeks of a father who has two sons. The youngest son goes off, goes missing, comes home, and then, folks, you can fill in the blank here, there is much, right. And so what you and I need to ask ourselves are really two questions this morning. Here's the two questions I want you to ask yourself as we move through this. Number one, I want you to ask yourself this question, does God love me? Okay, I just want you to ask yourself as we're moving through this text, keep that rattling in your brain, does God love me? The second question I want you to ask yourself is this, God, will you show me? God, do you love me? And God, would you show me? Would you show me the answer to that? When we pick up in the third part of Luke chapter 15 and verse 12, there is a man who has two sons. The younger son comes to the father and makes a heartbreaking request. The younger of them said, verse 12, to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. The younger son looks at his father and he essentially says, Dad, in my eyes, you're as good as dead. Dad, I want my inheritance now, even though you're still alive. Dad, I want all your stuff I don't want you. And when you think about that, that's the very definition of sin. When you and I come to God and we say, God, we want your blessings, but we don't want you. God, we want to enjoy your creation, but we don't want a relationship with you. God, we want you to answer our prayer requests, but we don't want anything with you. I mean, just think about that. People live in our world every day, enjoying God's presence, enjoying God's blessings, enjoying God's creation. And many of them going, you know what, we're enjoying all this, but we don't want anything with you. And that's what this younger son does. Comes to the dad. Dad, you're as good as dead. Give me what's coming to me. I want your stuff. I don't want you. Now, as a parent, what would your reaction be? Because I think the Pharisees are probably standing off to the side like, "Uh uh-huh, yep, Jesus is about to swing this thing to where that dad's going to really give it to the son, right? I mean, what would you do as a parent right here? Sure, I'll give you what's coming to you. Let me go fetch the belt, right? 
I'll give you what's coming to you. Here's a backhand. I'll give you what's coming to you. Sure, why don't you just go on and hit the bricks? And, you know, you don't want anything to do with me? That's fine, leave. But I want you to notice what the father does. Because what the father does is shocking in the story. I mean, what, what he's about to do is really going to leave the Pharisees' mouths open catching flies here. But the father, in the shocking answer to verse 12, also does one of the most humiliating things he has to do in his life. Look at the end of verse 12. The younger son says, Father, give me the share of my property. What does it say? And he divided his property between them. Jewish custom would have the older son getting two-thirds of the estate. The younger son would get a third. So keep that in the back of your brain because we're going to call him the older brother next week. But the, the, the estate's now divided out, two-thirds and a third. Now, we, we can assume within this story that this is going to be a man of somewhat of wealth. In a moment, we're going to have a party. But in order to liquidate that request, in order to have that much cash on hand, this father more than likely would have had to start selling some things off. Maybe selling off parcels of land, maybe selling off possessions, maybe selling off livestock. And so do you think the, the talk in town started? Can you imagine the Facebook posts going on about this guy? I mean, talk of Alvin's bad enough on Facebook, right? Could you imagine talk of Bethlehem at the moment? Hey, what's going on? Why is he liquidating it off? Why is the kid leaving? What did he do? And so the father allows the son to go. He gives him his request. We read within the story that verse 13, he goes off into the far country. This is going to be Gentile territory, okay? So this is a Jew moving into Gentile land. The text tells us that things go very bad very, very quickly. Verse 13 says that he wastes his money, his property in reckless living, or the end of your verse may say prodigal living or wasteful living. And then notice in verses 14 through 16 what happened. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. So this is a Jew who has now hired himself out to a Gentile. So again, that's going to be embarrassing to him himself. And now this guy has sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Ladies and gentlemen, Jews do not like bacon like you and I do. They don't like a good pulled pork barbecue sandwich like I do. For Jews, this is disgraceful because they viewed pigs as dirty, filthy, unclean animals. That your contact with them now made your soul unclean more than just you physically unclean. And so now this man has had to attach himself to a Gentile. He's working for him, feeding the pigs. Then verse 16, longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. I want you to notice the downward spiral of sin. I want you to notice the downward trajectory of sin. See, sin will promise you good times. Sin will promise you a lifetime of things it cannot deliver on. And yes, sin may be fun for a moment, but it has eternal consequences attached to it. It has devastating things attached with it. And notice the downward spiral of this man. He is now fatherless, 
homeless, he's now penniless, friendless, and he is now foodless. See, someone once said it this way, sin will take you farther than you want to go, it'll cost you more than you want to pay, and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. See, sin will take you farther than you want to go, it'll cost you more than you want to pay, and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. And this is where he is. He's in the middle of the pig slop. He's far from home. He's broke. No family. No friends. No hope. But then I want you to notice what brought him back. Something brings this son back in verse 17. It says, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? but I perish here with hunger. I want you to notice that the text tells us that what helps the son come to the realization he needs to go home is his father's love for him. Now, you might be reading verse 17 and going, whoa, whoa, no, no, hang on. I don't see anything about the father in verse 17. The son has realized his issue. The son has realized his condition. The son has realized he needs to go home. But read it a little more carefully. See, the son, what does it say? But he came to himself. He came to a realization of where he was. But what has drawn him back? It's his father's love. How many of my father's hired servants have enough bread to eat? A hired servant in that day and time is a day laborer. The son goes, wait a minute, I have a good dad at home. I have a good loving father at home because this father feeds even the day laborers more than they have enough to eat. And what you see within the story, it's a father's love drawing him back. Romans 2 verse 4 puts it this way, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, this morning, you, you may be off. You may be a little wayward. You may be running from God, but it's God's love drawing you back. It's God's love drawing you unto repentance. It's God saying, yes, I love you. Come home to me. Maybe as a parent, you, you have a wayward child. Or as a grandparent. You have a wayward grandchild. Don't stop loving them. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop seeking them. Pray that one day they're going to understand, wait a minute, I'm loved at home. I have this person loving and praying for me, and I want to go back home. And that's the realization of the son. I've got a dad at home that loves me. In verse 18, he says, I'm going to rise. I'm going to go to my father And say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to become your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This son realizes his need for repentance. His sin is deep. He's ready to come to his father. And he's ready to submit everything to the father. And say, Lord, Father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son anymore. And then I want you to notice verse 20. Because verse 20 is one of the most exciting things within this story. Verse 20 says that the son arose. 
And that as he is coming, the father sees him a long way off. And what does it say he does in the text? He runs. When he sees his son, he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. Now we need to understand the context of the culture of the day. This is a Middle Eastern Jewish culture. This is more than likely a man of influence. These men do not run. It is shameful and undignified for them to run. They are not out signing up for the nearest 5K. I could get into this culture, right? They don't run. They're also wearing long robes. And within this culture, to run, they've got to pull the robe up and to expose one's legs in this culture is an act of shame and humiliation. And so this father sees his son a long way off, and he embarrasses himself. He humiliates himself. He shames himself on behalf of his son. And he runs and he meets him. And I believe there is a reason the father does this. Because in first century Judaism, there would be a ceremony that could take place called the Kazatza Ceremony. And because this Jewish boy had lost his money in Gentile territory, there is a ceremony that the community could have done called the Gazatza ceremony where they gather in the town square, they take a pot, and they drop it in the middle of the town, and they say, so-and-so is cut off. He is forever cut off from the community. He is no longer one of us. And in my sanctified imagination, I can see this father running through the town square, running through, passing by all the people, and outside of the town, running and embracing his son. And the text says, he kissed him. You know, it's amazing the way the Greek writes that out, is we could almost translate it, he showered him with kisses. It just wasn't a, it was a, He's back. My son has returned. And then what does the text say? On the outside of town, he says to his servants, go bring him the best robe. Congregation, who has the best robe? Who has the best robe? Say it. The father. Go bring him my robe. Go bring him my ring. A ring in that time of day would have been a signet ring. That would mean you belong to the family. You had the ability and the power and the authority to conduct family business. Go bring a ring on his, put it on his finger. He's back. Go bring sandals, verses 23 and 24 would say. Slaves did not wear sandals. Family members wore sandals. Go kill the fatted calf, for we're going to have a party. At this day and time, they don't eat meat like we eat meat. Meat for them was a delicacy for a special occasion. It's not an everyday thing that we eat multiple times a day. Go kill the fatted calf. My son who was lost has been found. My son who was gone is back. And I don't want you to miss this. The father on the outskirts of town forgives his son. Because what is the text saying? I, I love this beautiful exchange between the father and the son. In verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
What part is left out? Do you remember the practice speech? The practice speech of the son there in the pig slop was, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, Father, forgive me, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. What's left out in verse 21? Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What's left out? Make me like one of your hired servants. Why is it left out? Because I believe the dad said, that's enough. You're not earning your way back in. You've come home, you're back in. See, we try to do this with God's grace all the time. We try to manipulate it. God, forgive me of this. I'll never do it again. God, if you'll just forgive me this one time, I'll be good. God, I'm sorry what I did. I promise I'll show up to church. Lord, if you'll forgive me again, I might stay awake during the sermon, right? Every time we try to manipulate God's grace, God says, that's enough. You've come back. You've come as you are. You've asked for forgiveness. And here's the father. He has forgiven his son. He has restored his son. A robe, a ring, feet, a party. And now he gets to walking back through the town. My son's back. I've restored him. You're not cutting him off. He's back in the family. And what you see outside of town is a picture of salvation, and you see a picture of restoration. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what God does for us. That when he forgives us, he not only forgives us, he restores us. He brings us back into a right fellowship with him. It's more than just, oh God, forgive me. God, bring me back in the right fellowship that I have with you as daughter and son, daughter and father, as son and, and father. God, forgive me, restore me. And the father in verse 24 says, my son was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. And we see this part at the end of verse 24 we've seen throughout the chapter and they begin to celebrate. You see, the response of the Father is one of love, forgiveness, restoration, and rejoicing. Love, forgiveness, restoration, and rejoicing. When you come to God with your sin, and you ask for forgiveness, and you come home to Him, God loves you, God forgives you, God restores you, and God rejoices over you. You know, growing up, one of my favorite television shows was The A-Team. Can I get an amen? Right? I love The A-Team. You had Hannibal, the leader. Face, the con man that could get you everything. Murdoch, the crazy pilot who could fly anything. And then my favorite character, Mr. T. B.A., the tough guy, the muscle of the group who could drive anything. But B.A. being this tough guy, this muscle guy, this take-on-the-world kind of guy with his bad attitude had a big fear. You guys remember what was his fear? You can say it. Flying. He was not going to fly. He was not going to get on a plane, especially if Murdoch was flying it, right? 
And they had to trick B.A. every time how to get on the plane. But there is no way that B.A. Baracus, this tough man, was going to fly because his fear was flying. Your fear may be flying. Your fear may be going up in tall places. You may have a fear of spiders. You may have a fear of snakes. You may have a fear of sharks. You may have a fear of being alone. But I imagine there's some of you who have a fear of God. You have a fear of coming to God. You have a fear of bringing to God what you've done, who you've been, who you are. You have a fear of taking off the mask and being real before God. And the reason you may have that fear is maybe you had an earthly father that just was not a good father in this regard. You had an earthly father who would not have received you this way of the father we saw in the text. But in Luke 15, the cast of characters is this. The younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners. The older son represents the Pharisees, the religious people. We'll get to them next week. The father represents Jesus. And what you see in Luke 15 is a perfect father. A father who has taken his son's shame, his son's embarrassment, his son's sin upon himself, and he paid for it. And a a father who forgives, who restored, who loved, and rejoices. And for some of you this morning, your fear may be coming to God and exposing really who you are before him, maybe because of that bad earthly father. But I ask you to ask yourself two questions before we started. I said, ask yourself this, does God love me? And then God, will you show me? In your head, you may say, yes, God loves me, but what does your heart say? Because here's the way God has showed you his love. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So where you are today, God loves you, and he wants you to come to him, and he wants you to put down whatever sin you're carrying whatever thing you've done, and what you're going to find is a father who loves you, who forgives you, who restores you, who rejoices over you. In church, may we always be a people that rejoice in what God rejoices in, and that's people coming to Christ. May we always be a church that doesn't push out the marginalized, but invites them into community like Jesus. This morning I call you, maybe you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but today you've strayed. There's sin you're holding on to. Put that down. Come as you are. There is no earthly sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Come to your Father this morning and find that love and that forgiveness and that restoration. Allow God to rejoice over you because you've come back, you've turned to Him. Maybe today you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're ready to start that relationship with him. You are not too far gone. You are not too bad. Because here's what I want you to understand from this text. That in in Christ, there is nothing you can do that will cause God to love you less. In Christ, there is nothing you can do that will cause God to love you more. I'm going to say it again in case you're writing it down. That in Christ... There is nothing you can do that will cause God to love you less. In Christ, 
There's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you more. So maybe this morning, for those of you who have never started that relationship with Christ, the Bible says, put your faith, your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to give you that opportunity to do that right now. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just go to the Lord in prayer. Whatever your prayer is this morning, I want to invite you to pray it right now. Wherever you are in your faith, whether you have been walking with the Lord for a long time, and maybe this morning is just a reminder of His love, of His grace, and you can spend this time right now praying in thanksgiving, God, thank you for loving me. Maybe there's a person you want to pray for that you know who, is, who has gone astray. It's a son, it's a daughter, it's a grandchild, it's a friend, it's a coworker, whoever it is, spend a moment praying for them by name. But maybe today, right now, you're ready to start a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're ready to be saved. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart that, that Christ died on the cross for your sin and was risen from the dead, you confess with your mouth, you're going to be saved. Romans 10, 13 just says, call on the Lord for salvation. Anyone who does that will be saved. Have their sin forgiven. Have a new life with Christ right now. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead in a prayer. I'm going to invite you to pray. Now it's what you believe in your heart. It's the commitment you're making right now. But prayer is just a way we talk to God. And so you can simply just say right where you are, you can pray this quietly with me. Dear God, today I'm ready to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I know I've sinned against you. And right now, I'm asking Jesus to save me. So I place my faith and my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you, God, for saving me. Father, I want to pray for those that maybe have prayed that today or maybe still wondering if they really can come to you. Lord, I want you to speak powerfully in their lives to let them know they're not too far gone. They're not too bad. That you are a God who forgives. You're a God who saves. You're a God who loves. Lord, I pray for those that may be or that we know in our lives that have, have gone a little wayward. We pray for them to come back to you. Lord, we pray you will do what you need to do in their lives to draw them unto you and, and that they would find forgiveness. They would find restoration. They would find a God who loves them and a God who rejoices over them when they come home. Lord, I pray we will always be a church that will rejoice in what you rejoice in. And that's people coming to find Christ as their Savior. So Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you show us that through your son Jesus who has died on the cross for our sins who rose from the grave to beat death thank you for that amazing grace we can celebrate and we can lay the chains of sin down and we can celebrate you as our father we pray in Christ's name amen thank you for listening to the sermon audio podcast from Heights Baptist Church in Alvin, Texas on Sunday mornings, we have life groups for all ages at 9 a.m., followed by worship service at 10.30 a.m. For more information about how to support the ministry of Heights Baptist Church, go to heightschurch.org.